So, yeah, I'm going to introduce uh, somebody who's one of my heroes, one of my uh, role models, you might say, called Atisha, who was a... Uh, he was actually from India, but he was uh, Tibetan. He spent quite a bit of his life in Tibet, so he's sort of renowned, really, for the time. Part of his life uh, he spent going to Tibet and, in a way, reintroducing the Dharma in Tibet um, and, the way, in a way, the way he did that. Uh, he's a, so he's a figure on our refuge tree, refuge tree of the Western Buddhist order, which I gather you've been having talks about really for quite some time already. Um, so they've got a picture of the refuge tree on the shrine over there. So above Shakyamuni the Buddha, there's a whole bank of about 18 uh, teachers in, from different countries, Japan, China, India and Tibet, and the teachers on the third tier up from the bottom one of the Tibetan teachers. Yeah, I've, uh, when, um, at a point when you, if you do uh, ask for ordination or, or when you join the order, there's a practice uh, which involves visualising that refuge tree. And uh, it's a practice I've done quite a bit at times and have really enjoyed sort of contemplating the richness of all those figures. And it sort of almost feels like they're uh, a bit like my spiritual family, I suppose sort of spiritual ancestors and yeah it's just quite lovely sometimes just to sit and sort of be absorbed in in their qualities their sort of benevolence or their attributes and so so there's there's the actual human figures there's in a way historical um, handing down of inspiration and understanding from Shakyamuni via all these historical figures to us now how we practice the Dharma has been really formed by those people in some ways or how we understand it and then there's a, a bit like there's this mandala, timeless mandala of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, uh, within which this, these historical figures uh, exist as well. So the refuge tree is really a very rich, rich symbol, um, very beautiful symbol, I think. It's, it's really three-dimensional, so when you see it sort of flat like that, it's actually like a three-dimensional mandala, the whole thing, and if you imagine it like that. And, yeah, I've sometimes felt when I've been me- sort of meditating on that, on the refuge tree, on that, on that symbol, uh, all those uh, Buddhas, those Bodhisattvas, and some of those particular teachers. I've got, as I've got to know what their lives were like and what they contributed, and what, you know, what their inspirations were. It's felt a bit like my spiritual home. So I was saying to somebody the other day, I, when I went on my around the year travel, um, sometimes I felt a bit at sea. I didn't know where I was, but I would sometimes meditate on the refuge tree, and then I felt, oh, I, this is where I am. And it gave me a context just to be anywhere somehow. It was my spirit, sort of a spiritual, a spiritual home. Yeah, so there's 18. So Sankarachita, uh, who was here giving a talk a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, founder of our movement, and he chose the, the figures on that tree. I'm not entirely sure why with all of them. I um, have to make a few guesses. Um, but uh, certainly... Each of those human teachers, those teachers from the past, you can sort of see that they've made enormous contributions to, um, in a way, the understanding of the Dharma in a particular age. Because the, it's a bit like there's this timeless Dharma, Buddhist teachings, but they seem to need sort of translating into uh, particular cultures and uh, times. So each of those people, I think they're a bit like a translator. You know, no Sangharachita thinks of himself as a translator, sort of translating the fundamental Dharma into something we can understand in our, in our day-to-day lives we can put into practice. 
And in a way, that's something we all need to do as well, translate the Dharma uh, into something that works for us and something we can talk about with others. Yeah. Uh, and so in a way amongst us there will be people who become translators of the Dharma in this age and perhaps one day some of us will be on a refuge tree in the future, who knows it's an exciting thought because we're not the end are we, hopefully we're not the end anyway we won't go into that, but anyway (laughs) hopefully there are cultures to come and uh, I also see it as a sort of responsibility really to try and understand the Dharma as, as clearly and as deeply as I can in order to in a way, um, or just, um, I suppose I think of it more as living it a little bit. Perhaps I don't want, I'm sure if that what Prabhupada meant earlier on, but trying to live the Dharma and bring it alive in in my life as much as possible in an ordinary sort of way, so that it can be sort of caught or um, you know brought alive in that way and, uh, and sort of sort of passed on in that in that sense. So I think Atisha uh, did that. Yes. So he was. From, uh, he was from India. Apparently, he was one of the perhaps one of the last great uh, Buddhist uh, pandits or acharyas. It's a great teacher at the great monastic universities of India. So, in the 11th, 12th century in India, but apparently there were these very, very big uh, colleges, monastic colleges, which were like a university, but they were also great spiritual um, practice places. And Atisha was one of the, uh, the teachers, or uh, a student, I suppose, and then became a teacher at one of those colleges. Um, but yes, even so, he, he's best known for the time he spent in Tibet. He arrived actually in Tibet at the age of 60. Um, but the, the, his contribution to the, the Dharma is he's best known for what he did after he was 60, between his 60, 60 and maybe 70-something year, which is something I think is good, a good thing to ponder on, actually, that... Uh, it could be that the best or the most productive years of our lives might be in our 60s and 70s. And so not to write ourselves off too soon. We may have years of sort of contribution to the welfare of beings ahead of us. So at the age of 60, he yeah, undertook, undertook a reformation, really, of, the, of Tibetan Buddhism as it then was. Uh, yes, because um, although Buddhism had sort of been transplanted, as it were, to Tibet, partly by Padmasambhava, the great teacher in the 8th century. Um, it went through a long phase of persecution after that. There were some, some uh, kings of Tibet who were not at all inclined towards Buddhism. In fact, they were really sort of the opposite, uh, very, very, um, very anti, and actually, you know, um, burnt down monasteries and killed lots of the, the monks and Buddhism was almost died out in Tibet, in fact, by the 10th century. So uh, Tisha arrived in Tibet around that sort of time and managed to sort of calm things down and bring a new level of uh, depth of practice and understanding of the Dharma in Tibet, from which Tibetan Buddhism, as we now know, it really uh, flourished and and came alive. So without him, perhaps there might not have been the sort of Tibetan Buddhism that that we know now. Yes. Yeah. So he seemed quite a multifaceted sort of character. He obviously had a very, very clear mind, a great mind. He was a, a philosopher, and he seemed to be someone who could bring together uh, different strands of philosophy um, into a, one coherent practice, which was is quite a talent, I think. 
but he also uh, was somebody with a very warm heart. I suppose that's what's touched me about him. He had a very great heart, it seems. Um, and uh, uh, obviously, I'm going to say a bit about his life. And I feel he really, to me, he exemplifies somebody who is a true bodhisattva, somebody who's, you know, um, giving of their life for the welfare uh, of all beings. And he seemed to live that out in his life. So I, yeah, I found his life very inspiring. And his teaching, you often, um, in his teachings, there's an accent on kindness and compassion. On, uh, I suppose it's my name, isn't it? Maybe that's why I'm attracted to this. But I think everyone's attracted to kindness and compassion, aren't they? But uh, he, he, he um, again and again, he exhorts his disciples to, to practice kindness and to think of others. Uh, and in fact, one of the teachings that he's best known for, I think, these days uh, with us is a, a, a teaching called the Seven Point Mind Training, which some of you may have heard of. It, it came initially from, uh, well, I'll say a bit more about, I think, how the, yeah, he came to learn or, or understand that teaching himself and pass it on to his disciples. It's a, it's a, the Seven Point Mind Training is a, a path of uh, sort of precepts that you live out in your life and also meditations and reflections that help to cultivate this bodhicitta, the, the heart of enlightenment that is full of compassion for, for being other all beings. It's a very intense, intensive, uh, systematic sort of practice, working on yourself to sort of, in a way, uh, to sort of get to see, to see what stands in your way, in a way. It sort of, it throws up, uh, it's a very, very positive practice, but it throws up your demons in front of you allows you to see your ego and uh, um, therefore yeah, helps you in a way to purify purify yourself of the things that stand in your way of, of being more compassionate. And the, um, well, the essence of that practice is a, there's a little phrase called the exchange of self and others, which I thought I'd ask Munisha to read a few, she's going to read, do a couple of readings for me. Uh, read some verses from a text called the Bodhicharya Avatara, which is the, the uh, text from which our sevenfold puja has been taken. Those of you who've come across the sevenfold puja, and that was written by Shanti Deva, who's another of the great figures on the refuge tree. In fact, who lived a few centuries before Atisha. So I think that the, um, some of the these verses show you the sort of essence of the teaching in a better way than I'll be able to uh, express them. <laughs> Right, the mic. The mic. Okay. At first, one should meditate intently on the equality of oneself and others as follows All equally experience suffering and happiness. I should look after them as I do myself. I should dispel the suffering of others because it is suffering like my own suffering. I should help others too because of their nature as beings, which is like my own being. When happiness is liked by me and others equally, what is so special about me that I strive after happiness only for myself? When fear and suffering are disliked by me and others equally, what is so special about me that I protect myself and not the other? 
Whoever longs to rescue quickly both himself and others should practice the supreme mystery, exchange of self and other. If I give, what shall I have left to enjoy? Such concern for one's own welfare is fiendish. If I enjoy, what shall I give? Such concern for the welfare of others is divine. those sort of qualities that we've heard just there were the very essence of the sort of practices that Tisha was um, himself practicing very very hard and also um, teaching teaching to others and those have come down through the centuries to us um, but, the, but the other quality about Atisha I've been very moved by is his devotion to the Bodhisattva Green Tara who's my own Idam so I, I took on the practice as a visualization practice which we can take on when we are ordained, if we'd like to do that, to visualise a, a Buddha or a Bodhisattva form. So I, I'm, I've taken on that practice myself of green Tara. Um, and I've been quite touched by hearing, in a way, how um, with a teacher himself, he, would, he was very, very devotional. Um, and somehow I don't always think of great scholars as being very, very devotional. It, it sort of feels very sort of receptive or, I don't know, quite touching quality somehow. And he would always uh, ask Tara uh, her advice on big decisions he was going to take in his, in his life. Um, so that's... Uh, and, and she would reply. But I think... I don't know if you've ever tried anything like that. It, it, um, I have found myself that that can... I can ask... Yeah, ask and you will get a reply. But I won't say any more about that. But it's not always the reply you're expecting... <laughs> <laughs> mind you but also you, you have to ask not lightly yeah, you can't do it as an experiment I think it's a bit of, if you really want to if you want to call on Tara or call on the Bodhisattva uh, you have to really mean it but, but then you do get some you do get definitely a, an immediate response of some sort but uh, yeah Tisha often apparently saw visions of Tara and uh, from, from his early uh, boyhood and she sort of steered the course of his life So, uh, yeah, I'm dedicating this talk to Tara and the principle of compassion, the force of compassion in the world, and may it, may it come into being more and more in our midst, in this very place. So, although uh, I'm moving on to talk, tell a little bit about his life story now, although he lived about a thousand years ago, actually his life it seems to be fairly well documented, and that's apparently partly because in Tibet, apparently they, they were actually quite good at writing biographies and they were interested in people's lives, whereas apparently the Indians, there's no, no information about him when he was a, at the Indian monastery, but it's all coming from his, his Tibetan disciples because they had a, somehow they had a different men, um, way of looking at, at life and they were much more interested in biography. Uh, even, even so, um, yeah, the accounts of his life can seem a little bit mytholo- mythologized. is that the right word? Or... Uh, to our Western way of thinking, but perhaps they seem quite real. I don't know in, over there in the East. Um, there are there are sort of aspects of his life story, but there's also his teachings which have come through to us. Even some of his actual words 
so, so it, it's said. So we do get quite a, a strong sense of him as a person. And the, the sense I get is of somebody actually very down to earth, uh, with a very um, strong practice of ethics and meditation, and friendship and, and kindness, very very much grounded. But also he seems to be a, quite a visionary. He sort of breaks out into spontaneous poetry. Um, well, at one time he does that. Uh, arriving on the border of Tibet when he's travelling, he'd been travelling by elephant for quite some time, three years apparently, to get to Tibet. <laughs> and uh, must be quite sore by then. And uh, the uh, Tibetans meet him there with full ceremony and they offer him a t- cup of Tibetan tea in a beautiful ma- mug with a dragon on it. It's actually described... And he breaks out into a spontaneous poem because he loves this tea so much. So, uh, so he obviously went. I, th- I imagine tea would have won the hearts of the Tibetans straight away, wouldn't? They have the sort of yak tea, the yak milk, rancid yak milk tea. At least, apparently, <laughs> takes a bit of getting used to, but he liked it straight away. But anyway, he was obviously he was quite a sort of a poetic person. And there's another uh, account when he first got to the, um, uh, the major monastery that was still standing in Tibet, and he walked round with the great abbot of the day, and uh, he just he came out with these spontaneous verses of uplift at all the different um, statues of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that he saw. He would just somehow co- create, you know, completely on the moment, compose a, a hymn of praise to each one. So he's quite a, a balanced sort of character. So he was apparently born in East Bengal in 982 of the uh, Christian era, that is to say. And the accounts of his life, it sounds pretty fabulous, really. But taking it with a pinch of salt, um, all the descriptions of palaces and countless houses he had for different times of the year and bathing pools encircled with gardens, forests and golden victory banners... Uh, anyway, it seems likely he was born in quite a well-to-do family. But I don't want to sort of lower the tone too much. Maybe a princely family in East Bengal, which is, uh, I think that's, that's, near, that's now Bangladesh, isn't it? He was quite near Dakar, apparently, in Bangladesh. And he was given the name Chandragarbha at his birth. And apparently he grew to be uh, extraordinarily beautiful and charming in his youth. Uh, which is apparently does seem to be borne out actually in later years because you get quite a few descriptions of of him from later on that he he his be, he had a bearing of a lot of grace and beauty and always had a sort of quite a serene smile on his face. So yeah, even at the age of sixty when he's travelling to Tibet, there's a description of him like that. So he he probably had, was somebody who was quite well well graced in a way with a, a human a pleasing human form that was a, and, and a nice pleasant sort of disposition but yes he had visions of Tara uh, from his um, babyhood, boyhood apparently and he he wanted, although he um, his parents didn't want him to he wanted to leave home and uh, practice the Dharma um, become a, leave worldly life and be, uh, seek a Buddhist teacher which is eventually what he did so, uh, so it's interesting actually how Buddhism was at that time in India um, it was very, in a way, very refined in a certain sort of way, very sophisticated, and it, it had, got, had got a bit of a long way from a down-to-earth practice of the precepts and meditation, whatever it was, a, um, what we'd think of as a maybe Vajrayana, Tantric Buddhism. So lots of very complicated um, rituals and ceremonies and uh, visualizations of uh, all sorts of 
weird and wonderful uh, Buddha and Bodhisattva figures. Um, so this is the realm of type of Buddhism that Tatisha met, and he went. His first teacher then was a tantric yogi called Rahula Gupta, who lived in the Black Mountains. So it sounds like it was a quite a big jump from his his palace. Apparently, in a place quite near where the Vultures Peak is. For those of you who who know, have been to India or know the near Rajgir, where the Buddha taught the Dharma. He received tantric ordination about 16, um, and he apparently threw himself really wholeheartedly into his practice. And sounds like he was a very deep and uh, deep meditator. And his last three years were spent with the Darkanese in Uddiyana. Um, it seems like the Darkanese might have been a, a, a training ground, a sort of tantric training ground in North West India. And the Darkanese, well, I think there the were a lot of the female practitioners, were perhaps the, the teachers at that place. And he became a great tantric adept. <coughs> But then at the age of 29, apparently he had a dream of the Buddha who, who um, was saying to him he should seek ordination as a bhikkhu. So that, was, that would have been more in the, the, um, the tradition of early Buddhism. It's in a saffron-robed, uh, precept-taking uh, bhikkhu that we're perhaps a bit more f- familiar with from the, from the East. And he, he does do that. He, he, takes a, he listens to his dream and he goes and receives ordination in the Maha Sangika school and he's given a new name which is Dipankara Srinyana and that's the name he, he has, he keeps really throughout the rest of his life and this name, a teacher that he's known by is a sort of um, an honorific title he was given it actually means Great Lord so it's not his, not his personal name which was Dipankara so he goes, then he goes to a, one of the big monastic colleges that I was mentioning earlier, and he, he studies and trains for, for many years, uh, particularly um, throwing himself into uh, practice of meditation, mindfulness, and Savastivadin Abhidharma. That's very in-depth, uh, very detailed sort of d- Dharma study. So anyway, he's gone right from one extreme to the other, hasn't he? Sort of tantric meditation in the mountains with his tantric yogi to this sort of what can seem like perhaps quite a sort of dry but um, very principled and uh, highly structured life in, in a monastery. But then another big change happens in his life. Um, it's hard to know quite you know, what sparks it off, but he, he, does take, he takes the vows of a bodhisattva from his teacher in that monastic college, his teacher, Dharma Rachita. And that seems to set him off on a journey... Uh, to, in a way, find teachings which will help him to cultivate the bodhicitta, that will help him to really realise his wish to be a bodhisattva. Um, actually, it's these, this, these teachings of um, the, which are encompassed really in that reading we've just had and uh, the seven-point mind training. And he decides to go and seek a teacher who lives in Sumatra, which it turns out to be 12, how long is it, 12, uh, 12, no, not 12 years, 14 months, it's 14 months journey away. So, uh, yes, he decides to sort of set sail. So the next, the next we see of him, he's on this merchant ship setting out on a very long voyage. Uh, and in the, 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 um, the name of the, go- of the uh, island where Sumatra was is called the 
I forgot, I forgot what its Sanskrit name was, but it was translated as the Golden Isles. So I, I always find this quite, um, I don't know, it's, it's quite a sort of a mythic sort of feel to it, sort of setting sail to the Golden Isles to search for the Bodhicitta, search for the Bodhisattva's way of life. And he finds there eventually, uh, yes, his teacher Dharmakirti, who's uh, renowned for his, yeah, his teachings and practices leading to the Bodhicitta. But yeah, it is along an arduous journey, so when, on, the, on the way, this is quite well documented in the, Tibetan, uh, in the Tibetan biography about all the storms that come up on the, on the journey. And uh, yes, it's at one point the, the uh, ship is caught in a great tempest and thrown about by the wind and the waves. And then another time it becomes completely becalmed and unable to move. So Atisha's just in the ship and just getting thrown around. Uh, can't do anything. Uh, then enemies of the Dharma appear in the storm, hurling thunderbolts at the boat, uh, or take the shape of great leviathans in the ocean. Uh, and the, the, the crew members, knowing that Atisha is a great tantric yogi, they call on him to subdue these hostile forces. And he does this by transforming his body into that of a wrathful deity and hurling vajras in all directions. <laughs> the enemies are subdued and promise not to obstruct Atisha's path any further. And they convert to the Dharma themselves. <laughs> then 21 maidens appear in the sea singing to Atisha. And it's the 21 Taras who show themselves having helped Atisha in the battle with the evil forces. So... So it's uh, quite a journey, isn't it? And, <laughs> yep. I, w- I was thinking, I mean, we're so bored of psychological, aren't we, in our era? But uh, perhaps, what it, perhaps it was something to do with, um, it could have been, you know, in a way, it's Tisha, Tisha's inner journey as well as his outer journey. And I imagine on a 14-month journey to um, seek your teacher, you might well have a lot going on, mightn't you? And a, a lot of, he wasn't already enlightened, so a lot of resistance perhaps coming up. And just seeing his own ego, his greed, hatred, and delusion, um, just slamming itself against the masts and the sea, and he couldn't really get away. But, uh, yeah, I think perhaps, who knows which is more real as an interpretation? I don't know. Yeah. But, it, I mean, yes, I was just also reflecting how amazing to decide to travel so far in such a, and actually, it was a perilous journey, a dangerous journey just in, in order to, say just, in order to, to hear the Dharma, or whether we would do that, or what would that mean, what's an equivalent for us, um, a decision that we might have to take, or what, you know, to, uh, would we put ourselves aside in that way, or make that decision, what would help us to do that? So when you, when you got there to Sumatra, to the Golden Isles, his teacher said he could only stay if he would stay for 12 years, to, to uh, practice and cultivate the bodhicitta and so he agreed and that's what he did and uh, yeah, at that time he, he, was, he was actually learning a, very, a vast range of teachings which, uh, which actually stood him in good stead when he went to Tibet and uh, in a way reformed the whole of the Tibetan Buddhism there and this teacher Dharmakirti apparently was very very dear to him uh, again it was quite moving reading about the relationship he the love he had for his teacher that later on in life he couldn't speak of his teacher without, without bursting into tears because he was so dear to him he was so revered his teacher and 
and I was so grateful to what he learned from him or just by practicing at his side but he did eventually he came, came back to India he was uh, 44 years old by then and he went again to one of those other monastic colleges Vikram Shina where he was the principal um, teacher Pandit Acharya and we've got a little snippet which Munish is going to read now which describes how he was then uh, a Tibetan had actually gone to the, the um, college and saw Atisha there and describes how he saw him which is quite nice to have get another little sense of, of him His graceful appearance and smiling face struck every one of the assembly. From his waist hung down a bundle of keys. The Indians, Nepalese and Tibetans all looked at him and took him for a countryman of their own. Even the gods would own him for their own. There was brightness mixed with simplicity of expression in his face, which acted as a magic spell upon those who beheld him. In the following morning, I went to the door of a vihara. While I was reciting the pragnasara, a venerable acharya with bright looks and smiles in his face entered the vihara. Observing the simple, unostentatious demeanour which marked him, I resolved within myself, if we fail to take Atisha to our country, this pundit might, well, might as well serve our purpose. Next morning, I happened to be at the place where that venerable Acharya was distributing alms and food to the poor and making offerings to spirits. A beggar boy who failed to get his share of alms ran after him and exclaimed, Blessed be thou, O patron Atisha, give me rice. Hearing this, I became delighted. Tears of joy flowed from my eyes. I followed him as he walked towards his place and was about to fall from a bridge while walking over it, my attention being wholly engrossed upon a Tisha. So, that's a rather lovely account, isn't it? You just imagine sort of walking along and, uh, and so following your person who um, you admire so much falling off a bridge <laughs> yeah so uh, time goes by won't tell me about every single year of his life otherwise we'll be here all night but uh, at the age of 56 uh, there came another big turning point in his life and by now he was the greatest uh, teacher acharya of his time in India had many disciples uh, and he could no doubt have continued to develop his own teaching and deepen his own insight in that familiar environment. But uh, a, a sort of challenge or a, a request came to him from the Tibetan people. So it seems actually that Atisha had been approached once before already by the Tibetans to go to their country to help with uh, that situation I mentioned earlier where the Dharma was pretty much, was on a very, very low ebb, almost died out really. Uh, but he'd said he had too much work to do already in India. But the Tibetans uh, came again, a, a contingent of uh, monks came from Tibet and asked Atisha again. 
so I thought we could maybe just imagine this scene. Uh, there's, a, there's a young Tibetan monk called Nagso uh, has come to meet a T-shirt in his room, and he makes this the request on behalf of the Tibetan king. So we've got this great Atisha, 57 years old, probably very, uh, perhaps a lot of charisma, strong, uh, awe-inspiring presence. And the young Tibetan monk, Nagso, with his small retinue. And he's apparently arranging a mandala of gold in front of Atisha to make an offering to him. And he proceeds to tell Atisha the story uh, of, of Tibet and what's happening there at the moment. And what he's saying is that Tibetan, you know, Tibetan Buddhism has come to a, a state of great crisis. Um, there are serious wrong views about what, of the nature of the Dharma, uh, as well as uh, a big fragmentation in the whole, in the whole country. Um, there's been quite a sort of corrupt tantric Buddhism which has been spread in, in Tibet at that time. And uh, there's one, even one sect which apparently taught a practice called Union and liberation, which was interpreted by them as rape and human sacrifice. So, I guess it was that sort of, that sort of tantric idea that, uh, um, if you're, in a sense, if you're being yourself and expressing your nature, then uh, you're just—it's liberation. But people were were seriously confused about what was the Dharma and what wasn't the Dharma. So, the Dharma itself was coming into disrepute because people were saying this was Buddhism, this type of. Uh, you know, uh, serious misunderstanding was giving Buddhism a bad name. There was a king in western Tibet, though, called Yeshe Zod, uh, who was really trying hard to restore uh, Buddhism. And he'd, he'd actually organised for some young Tibetans to go to India and train in monasteries in India and learn to translate texts and come back to Tibet. Uh, and, uh, but most of them had died because of the, you know, the difference in climate. The Tibetans couldn't live very long in India. They'd, they'd get these diseases, and uh, the heat of the plains was very, very difficult for them. One of them had come back, who was a great, this tant- great tantric scholar, Rinchin Zangpo. And uh, I don't know if anybody has read *The Way of the White Clouds* by uh, Anagarika Govinda. It's a very, very beautiful book about his journey in Tibet, and he goes, he finds a, a long abandoned monastery called Saparang and a golden temple at Tholin, uh, which are de- sort of decaying, and they're, they're full of these magnificent murals, which is, his wife proceeds to trace the murals. And it's very, very, it's, all, it's crumbling every day, and he's, she's tracing these very, very beautiful murals and very, very beautiful uh, Buddha figures. And that, that temple was created by this great monk, apparently, Rinchen Zangpo. So, but he was now in his 90s, and, uh, yeah, there was a... There wasn't much hope, in a way, for Tibet at that time. So uh, Yeshe Zod, this great Western, this king of Western, Western uh, Tibet, uh, he was thinking, although they tried, they one invitation to, to a teacher and that had failed, that it had failed because they'd offered too little gold, perhaps. And so he organised a fundraising expedition and went round Tibet to, to raise funds. Uh, but he fell into ha- the hands of some enemies <coughs> when he was doing it. And unfortunately, those enemies demanded a huge ransom for him, and that was almost the amount of gold that you know, he'd been raising to uh, to seek for Atisha. But the, so the king, but the king's son um, started collecting funds to ransom his father. Uh, but when he actually went to his father, they found that he still hadn't got enough money, 
so his father was, you know, in a way, he was getting old himself, and he decided to, um, he asked his son to keep the money to go and take it to a teacher and ask a teacher to come, that he would die soon anyway. And it was more important that uh, a teacher came to Tibet and re-established the Dharma there. So, and he did actually uh, die shortly afterwards in captivity still. So, of course, when he heard that story, you know, Atisha was very moved and uh, felt he felt the king had been a bodhisattva, uh, you, know, the, the, uh, you know, in a way, um, not accepting his own release, but asking for Atisha to come instead and uh, to help the Dharma to re-establish. And so Atisha did decide to go to Tibet. But he also, uh, before he really finally decided, he consulted Tara as well. And uh, as to the, what the outcome would be for him and for the Dharma if he goes to Tibet. So I thought I'd chant the Tara invocation again at this point as we're consulting Tara. Uh, where is the Tara invocation? Which we get from Misurika. Save me uh, unraveling myself. So, so he goes to a great temple of Tara that, and uh, in, uh, invokes invokes her invokes her response to the question. Perhaps we could all uh, shut our eyes at this point to sort of uh, take ourselves into the atmosphere of what that would be. So Tara had a very, very positive response to uh, Atisha going to Tibet. Uh, for the Tibetan people, she said it would be very, very beneficial. But that uh, if, if Atisha did go to, to Tibet, his life would be shortened by 20 years. So that was, again, a decision that he needed to take, whether uh, he was willing to, to do that. And uh, he did. As we know, he went to Tibet. He did... Uh, take that step. Um, so moved was he by, in a way, the need of the the people there. So that we do now find t- uh, Tisha on a, his second great mythic journey on this elephant. I think he might have gone by yak later. Actually, I think it might not be an elephant the whole way. So he's on an elephant and he's going all the way through Nepal and uh, uh, to on route to Tibet and everywhere he's going. Uh, people ask him to teach the Dharma, so it takes ages, you know, much much longer than it would have been. So he goes to a kingdom, and the king the king won't let him get past unless he 
you know, spends at least several months there teaching them all the Dharma. So everywhere he goes, he's teaching. And then he arrives at the border, has his cup of tea, as we've heard. Uh, I, th- I thought it was interesting, <laughs> I've written down here. Padmasambhava converted Tibet by subduing demons, and uh, Atisha did it by praising tea. It's a different way in, isn't it? A different approach. <laughs> different ways to convert a country. Yeah, his kindness. So his kindness was a great attribute, uh, a, a great aspect of, of Atisha. Um, and he, he really did seem to win the hearts of people that he met with, this, with his, his um, kindness, his simplicity, and a sort of radiance, it seems, that he had. Um, and he even, he even uh, taught, talked or talked, taught or talked to animals, apparently. So he was, he, he was very um, aware of all, all beings. And he didn't just teach monks and nuns, which uh, I think some people at that time, you know, the, the monastic uh, circle it was quite uh, refined and um, a bit away from the, 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 uh, the, the, the people in general. But Atisha would talk, teach lay people and monks and even animals. And a saying of his which really sums up these qualities, um, he said, if you have any desire at all, have a desire for kindness. If you have any desire at all, have the desire for kindness. So his, his practice was very, uh, very down to earth. And uh, there's a book called the, I think it's The Door of Liberation, which has quite a lot of his sayings in, if you want to read any of them later on. And there's one, it's very human actually, there's one where he, he's saying rather ruefully that his students only seem keen to receive teachings, but when it comes to putting them into practice, it's another thing, another matter. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so things don't really change, do they? That that's just what we're like as well. We. It's always interesting getting a new teaching, but actually when it comes to you know, the hard grinding work of day-to-day practice, it's not quite so attractive, is it really? But... Uh, we have our good moments, don't we? And, and another saying of his about meditation. While meditating, do not count the number of years and months devoted to it. Rather, try to find out how much or how little self-knowledge you have received in your mind and how much or how little control you have acquired over your habits. So he's sort of, you know, he's, he's, very, he's not a superficial teacher or practitioner. He gets right down... Uh, he really wants people to change, doesn't he? He really wants people to transform and, and take the Dharma to their hearts. Um, yes. Towards the end of his life, uh, he uh, passes on a lot of his teachings to a Tibetan disciple who then starts the, uh, the, the uh, school called the Kadampa School, which uh, in, in, then in its... Um, few centuries down the line it becomes the, the Galugpa school which is one, it has been one of the mainstream schools in, in Tibetan Buddhism um, yeah so I won't, won't sort of go into this whole, I had a whole chunk here about his teachings but it gets a little bit detailed um, yeah so I, I was wondering about, he spent these 13 years into Tibet before he died so he did die I think it sounds like <coughs> when he was about 73 and uh Yes, he, he travelled all over Tibet, sort of teaching everybody he met. And it seems like Tibetan Buddhism sort of reshaped itself around him, like he was a bit like one of these uh, very clarifying and harmonising force, actually. I think because his understanding of the Dharma 
was quite was quite deep. Um, he was able to reconcile the different sort of approaches and sects. Uh, he was actually known as the refuge guru because he he, would, he taught the primacy of going for refuge, rather as Banti has done for us. That uh, in way your spiritual practice, your commitment to the Buddha Dharma and Sangha is the first thing, and sort of how you do it is secondary. And so he, in a way, he brought people together by by saying that. I think people got, we've all got this tendency to polarize, haven't we? So my way is best, and your way is not working. That's sort of very human, but uh, Tisha uh, really wanted people to, to sort of harmonise and come together. But yes, I sort of wondered if whether a teacher, if he'd stayed in India, whether he would have achieved as much as he did in going to Tibet, actually. It's hard, it's hard to know. He might have lived another 20 years, um, but would he, would he have really given so much to, to the world? And I thought probably going to Tibet would have drawn a lot more out of him, wouldn't it, than the situation of staying in a fairly sort of safe environment in, in India in that college. We, we don't really know, but uh, again, it's something to think about. But we, we, and we see the, the significance of, of his action as well was that uh, only a couple of hundred years later, those great monasteries in India were, were wiped out by the Muslim invasion, um, as well as the, the, the fact that they actually were decaying through a sort of... It seems that, as, that they weren't that alive spiritually on the whole. And uh, as I said, there was this beginning to be quite a distancing between the sort of population and the, the monks and nuns. Presumably were nuns. Those were some nuns. The monks and the nuns. Um, so when, when the Muslim invasion came and these monasteries were wiped out, there wasn't much sort of local Buddhism being practiced, and Buddhism itself died out in India very shortly afterwards. Uh, all the teachings and the uh, scriptures and the rupas and things in the monasteries were, were, were sort of burnt and destroyed, and uh, it was the Dharma texts that were taken to places like Tibet and China and uh, Southeast Asia, which kept the written Dharma alive for us, actually, because it didn't really continue in India. Uh, it's quite a shocking thought. Is I think if the teacher hadn't gone to Tibet, all the Dharma that was taken to Tibet wouldn't perhaps have um, been there for us now. Um, so his contribution was, you can't look ahead so far, and perhaps Tara did, look ahead so far to see what's going to be of benefit. So yes, yes. So the 60s and 70s in our lives might be our best. We might achieve our most. Uh, I guess you, you've got, I'm in my 50s at the moment, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, the, uh, they do say your 50s uh, can be the best years of your life. I guess you, you, you've got that sort of bit more maturity, haven't you? And um, uh, as well as quite a bit of life experience. And then if you're still healthy, okay. don't, don't put things off, of course. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing I thought about of a T-shirt. Well, he, he obviously wasn't born a Bodhisattva too. He he actually made himself, he created himself in a way as the being that he became. He's not like Padmasambhava, who was, you know, they say he was born on a lotus. But perhaps that uh, you know he uh, seems like more of a mythic figure. But for me, a T-shirt is a very human figure, uh, a human being who just achieved a lot and had a very very solid heart. You know, very uh, real um, kindness and compassion, which was it sounds like it was just fundamentally of incredible depth. And for me, that that is somebody who's a bodhisattva, who's who's got that ability to um, lead his life, lead his or her life, 
uh, without deviating just for the benefit of what he or she sees to be the good um, from responding to suffering where it's seen. So I just, I'll end with, um, oh, there was an, I was going to say another of his sayings actually before I end with this other saying, but he had another lovely, very useful saying. It was, um, uh, let's see, how does it go? Um, there's no end to, there's no end to things to do, so limit your activities. <laughs> there's no end of things to do or to be done, so limit your activities. Otherwise you just get overrun by them, don't you? So that is a very wise comment. Uh, and yeah, if you have any desire at all, have the desire for kindness. Thank you.